0: Hit me just the other day Before I rolled out of bed one morning Without you, there would be no sunshine There would be no rain in the season Without you, I know that I couldn't walk Couldn't talk, couldn't even breathe On a summer day. need you more than I need a home, more than I need I need more than I need, than I need it. Greetings, thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura. Promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life. All to the glory of God and praise to His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, a word about our sponsors. CR 101 Radio Network is a Christian reconstruction internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. Take a look at our website at cr101radio.com. Also, GCS Apprenticeship Program is a training program dedicated to the next generation of Christian teachers, so they can be equipped to get involved with the inspirational task and honor of being a Christian teacher or even owning and operating their own Christian school. See again, gcsapprenticeship.com for more information on that. And so in our last episode, we had dove into a discussion of general covenant theology and its impact on theonomy and looked at some hypothetical situations that would have resulted in uh, slavery to pay back uh, wrongs that were done, uh, being in debt to a a person, creating a servant and master relationship. And today we are going to take it a step further and we're going to uh, look at how um, death penalty offenses are dealt with and some examples um, that we would find in Scripture. And also maybe even if we have time get into a look at some of the um, uh, American theonomy under the Puritan society in um, uh, New England, taking a look at how uh, John Winthrop had recorded some of the the, um, situations that had occurred there in theonomy set up in the United States. And so before we do that, however, I would like to take some time to um, speak more about the nature of covenant theology and just kind of explain it for anybody new who's listening. I would encourage, however, that if this is the first um, that you have heard of the subject, that maybe you would like to go back and listen to part one, but I think there would be enough um basic um theology here to whet your your appetite on um, wanting to to learn more and so covenant theology is basically a theological look at the message the Bible teaches us about god's faithfulness in keeping his word. If I were to summarize it briefly, um, we call any word of God his covenant or his oath um in the book of Hebrews refers to god's Um, word as being immutable that his oaths are immutable that he swears by none greater so he swears by his own self and so especially when we speak in terms of salvation for a particular people um, we call saints which means holy ones or um, elect which are people that have been elected or selected by god um, to be born in time, but they are a people that are elected by God's sovereign grace, grace being a free gift of God, and the only way a thing can truly be free is if it is given freely. So this has to take place um, before the foundations of the world, before a human is born, so that um, that can truly answer to the terminology of of grace because of God's giving you something for Something you have done, then what you do is a work, and then you are being saved by works instead. And so it is by God's sovereign grace that he makes uh, heirs that are born to be part of his kingdom, the kingdom of the Father's dear Son, his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of his love. And so in the last episode, I cited uh, a pretty concise verse On the nature of basic covenant theology, it's kind of pretty much the go-to verse when dealing with the subject and just kind of pointing it out and showing that um, there indeed was a happening that took place before the foundation of the world um, that is recorded in Scripture that the Apostle Paul knew about and that he tells us about. So let's go back there for just a, a general recap on that. And then we're going to look at some of the prophetic utterances concerning this same will, as well as taking a look at what Jesus says himself. And then we'll dive into the subject matter of theonomy. Grab a drink there. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him, notice in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that's the same as being saints, and be without blame before him in love. Very important there. Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so we see here that Paul expresses a certain knowledge of God's predestined will, that was expressed, that he certainly knew about and was able to put into this language as he spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this epistle, no doubt. But that we are able to also see elsewhere in Scripture, namely that this will was to save a people before the foundation of the world and so that this would happen, in fact, before even those were born into the world. These people were known to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at the foundation of the world, but also importantly, these were known to Christ also in his manifestation at his crucifixion and at the time of his resurrection. That is that spiritually, the people Christ saved was willed by the Father and accepted by the Son. There is a covenant, a contractual agreement, so to speak, that is confirmed by the Holy Spirit in eternity. And so all of this is laid at the feet of what Paul calls the good pleasure of God's will. And so I made a strong point to emphasize that God's will is not like man's will. And I want to make that point strong and emphasized again. God's will is not like man's will. God's will cannot be opposed, okay? God will always save those whom he chooses to save we are told none can snatch those whom he saves out of his hand. And we are also told in the Song of Moses that none can deliver out of his hand. Okay, that um, that even is a place where God cites that he lives forever. That uh, this confirmation of God's absolute will that will take place, and as it is determined... By God, then, before the foundation of the world is very much so the um, foundation of covenant theology, that God cannot fail in his saving, that God cannot lose those he has a grasp on. No one is strong enough to take it out of his hand. And that those whom God has in his left hand of destruction, so to speak, no one can take them out either, that God is sure to crush them by his choosing also, and punish them for the evil that they have done. And so, though this salvation is chronological when we speak of it since the foundation of the world, it was manifest in time also, okay? And so when we hear, for instance, Jesus saying on the cross as he is dying, it it is finished, Um, we understand that that is the moment And which this has been finished, that that which was promised, the the application has been fulfilled, okay, of what he had promised to do faithfully up until that point, and then what he will secure after that point, all based on looking at the centrality of the cross as being the central focus piece of all history. And so... This, even in and of itself, Christ saying, before he dies, it is finished, knowing he is about to die, shows his ability to predestine and secure history as he does by his will, by the good pleasure of his will. It shows that he has full control and power at the uh, of the dispensing of time in, um, in his grasp, and that he is able to will it according to his counsel. And so... When Christ's blood was shed in this earthly happening, the application and propitiation or atonement, the covering, the pity of God, was applied, okay, in fact, in reality. But before the foundation of the world and since the foundation of the world, this was promised to happen. And this is because at the time of the expression and agreement and commandment of the will of the triune God... This salvation was as good as done. Notice in Ephesians 1.10, it goes on to say that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, Okay, and speaking of it in the way that God dispenses the fullness of time, as he also does all things by the counsel of his own will, and he does by the good pleasure of his will things as well. So we do not disagree that time has needs to pass. And that even the passing of time is at the dispensing of God's will, however. Okay? So that the dispensing of time, the fullness of time, happens in accordance with his divine purpose. And so what we we see here is the need for time to pass as God dispenses it to pass according to the good pleasure of his will. So we can then boldly believe and say... God's faithfulness is not like man's faithfulness. God is a covenant-keeping God. God is a covenant-keeping God of mercy and grace also, and that mercy and grace cannot be broken because he is the author and finisher of history and all the dispensation thereof. Therefore, when God says that he will do a thing, that he wills a thing, he has absolute autonomy to allow that to happen. He governs his own law of all things happening, and he is the only one that can take hold of that absolute sovereignty of autonomy. While man has no true autonomy, we oftentimes hear people speak about their own autonomy or their autonomous will. Man has no autonomous will. I oftentimes make a point that uh, man says, I'm going to go here or there, I'm going to walk down the street, and um, I'm going to go to the grocery store, and they trip on their shoelaces. They break their face. They never make it to the grocery store. They end up in the hospital or dead, and showing, this showing, they have no autonomous will, okay? You you can't will that you will do anything by your own self and your own personal law. So God has an infinite will. He has an immutable oath. He has... um, the ability to will what shall happen, and it will come to pass. So I want to add to that thought, because that's pretty much a recap of what we looked at last episode. But I want to look at the, the, the prophet Isaiah, and look at how one of the prophets, one of the great prophetic utterances of uh, Isaiah which comes out of 53, it's probably one of the greatest speaking of Christ. We know that this is definitely about Christ. It's cited about him several times, specifically applied to him by Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. And so we definitely have reason and resource in this. And so what I want to do is read it, and I'm just going to read it out of the King James Version. You can go and check out the Greek for yourself and look at the tenses of the words out of the Septuagint. You can see out of the Hebrew also how that it would be translated in this way accurately, while in the Hebrew you could play with it a little bit more. You're never going to undermine the way that the tenses are being applied here, okay? It's going to come out like this um, one way or the other. And so take a look at Isaiah 53, verse 1, where the prophet starts out with faith. Who has believed our report? Past tense. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? So he's asking a question. Who believes this report of ours? Who has faith in our report? To whom, who of you people is the arm of Yahweh, the Lord, revealed? And then he describes them like this in verse 3. Notice the tense. He is, present tense, despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief, and we hid, past tense, as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath, present tense, bore our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was, past tense, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now listen to this. And with his stripes we are, present tense, healed. Very interesting, isn't that, how the tenses are used? Past tense, present tense. And then as we look at verses 11 and 12, we will then see... The future tense as well. Verse 11 says, he, sh- he shall see of the travail of his soul. Speaking of God, Yahweh. Yahweh shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. So we're seeing the accomplishment of what is spoken of. By his knowledge shall, future tense, my righteous servant justify or make righteous Many for he shall bear their iniquities, isn't that very in- interesting? Verse four says, he hath bore our griefs, he hath carried our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God, he was wounded, he was bruised, he uh, our peace was upon him by his stripes we are healed, and then he speaks in eleven and twelve. In a future tense also. And so what's twelve go on to say, Therefore will I, Yahweh, divide him a portion with the great. I will, future tense. There's the will of God. I will divide him. He wills it a portion with the great. And he shall a command divide the spoil spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Boy, that is powerful. That is something that just, if you, if you let it sink in and you think about what is actually happening here, this was spoken by Isaiah hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And he's already speaking of a past tense event. Why is he doing that? He's speaking of a present tense claiming of what Christ has done for him, and he's speaking of a future tense application of it when Christ does it, when that 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 um, portion is divided to him with the great, divided with his people, because he pours out his soul unto death in the future, and he will he was numbered with the transgressors, and he did bear their sins and make intercession for them, and so that is pretty important stuff. From the prophet, just kind of let it sink in, and I think you'll see the relevance of how important it is to pay attention to those tenses. But more important than that, in refocusing on covenant theology before we get into the theonomy of, of the matter, you know, what is Isaiah talking about? We, we know as Christians, if we're familiar with the Bible, that he's talking about Jesus. But what is this past tense thing that's spoken of, even from Isaiah's time? What is the thing that... Isaiah is asking, have you believed that report? Has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to you like this? And so let's ask Jesus. Let's take a look at what he has to say about the nature of this heavenly, um, before the foundations of the world, uh, spiritual blessing that is given. You know if you start out just considering that John, which I think is is the best gospel to go to to look at the chronology of what is um spoken of about Christ, you can see the chronology of how Christ speaks concerning these things, these heavenly things that have happened with a confirming statement uh that um, there is a a absolute knowledge Christ is speaking about of before his birth events, when he was in heaven events. And so that claims uh, absolutely Jesus' preexistence with the Father and conversations that had with him and commandments that he had received and the will of God that he understood and expressed and how he is instrumental in accomplishing that. When you look at John, John just kind of starts the Gospels from the very beginning with this covenant theology, speaking of the word. Right, So that should take our mind to covenant because that's what we've been talking about, the word, the immutable oath, the promises of God, that it was the word that was made flesh in John 1.14. But in John 1.1, 1 1 it says that word was God. That word was with God. And so that was a confirming statement that a believer's power to believe comes from the word, that it is the word that is spoken. And then we're also uh, told about the, the word that God spoke from the very beginning was Jesus, it was about Jesus, but yet Jesus or the word is God. And so we see definitely the unity of the Father and the Son in those statements. And so in that we can understand fully how the word was God and the word was with God, and therefore, words are being exchanged back and forth. So we understand, we get a glimpse into the will of God that can definitely be expressed since the beginning. And as it is even uh, pointed out by Paul, before the foundations of the world. And that's how it would have to be in order to be ratified correctly. John one thirteen tells us about the will of God in this way. It says, There are those who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of men, but they're born of the will of God, and so therefore God actually wills a believer to be born into this world, so that they can be called the sons of God. They're a believer; they're destined to be that believer. And so we see further discussion of this then going down to John three, when the Lord speaks of having come down from heaven. A very important thing to notice: this isn't just like hyperbole, where uh, Jesus is is speaking in a way that um, you know isn't isn't absolute, but he, he says, I have come down from heaven, and I have been in heaven. I have seen the Father, in John 3.13, and so we absolutely know that Jesus um, claims that status with the Father at a time before the foundation of the world, before his coming for certain. And so we see express statements of the nature of this covenant in John 5 and 6 Namely this, if we were to go to John six thirty-seven through 40, we, where Jesus says, all that the Father giveth uh, the Son will come unto him, and that the one who comes unto him he will in no wise cast out. <clears throat> for I came down from heaven, he says in 38, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So you see here the will, and if you tie that directly in, prior to what was said the will that the father has is the will that he will to raise them up so you see a combined will they have a a a will that is independent of themselves but also a will that is united in its efforts of what it is going to do and what it is going to accomplish john 6:39 says and this is the father's will that has sent me that of all which he hath given me i should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then this final statement in John uh six sixty five also lets us in on uh, some more information here on this Uh, discussion that had happened between the Father and the Son in eternity past, that he says, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. And so then, knowing all of this, if we were to go all the way to John 12, Jesus can boldly say those that oppose him in this way, He that rejects me and receives not my word has one that judges him the word That I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, meaning he speaks the words of God. He says, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So there is a lengthy and informative recap of some verses we did not cover that you have to recognize. And remember that if you are someone who is an anti-predestinationalist and have that mentality, or maybe even you're a person that does not believe in the pre existence of the Son of God, uh, that he was actually in heaven uh, with the Father before his birth, um that he was the word made flesh or if you have a problem with the idea of the functionality of the trinity of the father son and spirit working in unison with individual wills that are combined to save sinners and that has been part of the faithful promise of god by his grace since eternity past then you still regardless of that have to answer for all of these reasons and then you have to offer a better reason and justify it by Scripture rather than just simply believe what the Bible says on the matter and what Jesus speaks of and Paul speaks of and Isaiah speaks of and and all the stuff that we covered, and that's not even um, close to half of the information that we could cover on this subject. But it's plenty enough to whet your appetite. It's plenty enough to get us back into the subject of of covenant theology in an application for theonomy and taking another look at another example of that. And so one of the reasons why this episode is called um, The Impact of Covenant Theology on Theonomy is because I had expressed in the past that oftentimes we who believe in theonomy, which is basically that the Christian ethic of society, as far as government is concerned, is that it should be governed and dictated by the laws of God, meaning out of the Pentateuch, out of the law of Moses, that is the perfect um, recipe for creating um, a good government. Um, What we oftentimes hear of is that uh, a person who believes that is a legalist or they are, somehow um, trampling on the blood of Christ or or don't believe in Christ's forgiveness of sins. They believe in works-based salvation, but that's entirely nonsense. It has absolutely no truth in it. Because once you have a knowledge of covenant theology and you realize that there had been a covenant since the foundation of the world that is to be faithfully completed in Christ, that was faithfully completed at the death of Christ, his burial, and in his justifying resurrection, once you understand that that is the message of the gospel, that that is how God saves sinners by his infallible and immutable word and oath, then it really kind of um, decapitates the argument that says that you don't trust in Jesus for your atonement, because it takes the conversation to another level. It takes it to a a theological level where you have to actually recognize that if you even believe that works ever played a part in salvation, since they couldn't have because since the foundation of the world, um, God had chose people that he would save by Jesus Christ, by what Christ would do, that that thing happening before Christ even did it was as good as done, Because the faithfulness of God was able to fulfill it, dispense history according to it, and make all things come to pass by the pleasure of his will. Once you understand that and believe it, it impacts your way that you view God's law. You can no longer um, accuse a person who knows that and believes that of being a legalist in terms of salvation. Okay, because that's not even on the table anymore. We're not even dealing in those terms any longer. And so the part that's hard about this is sharing this with a person who doesn't like theology, who doesn't want to think in this way. And what covenant theology is is a very Christocentric. It's, it centers on Christ, it's a Christocentric way of looking at the world, of looking at history, of looking at salvation, of looking at everything. It little's man down to nothing. And it makes God everything and his grace being entirely by his sovereign will, <clears throat> the good pleasure of his will, as a matter of fact. And so that's important to remember also as we go forward in this discussion. And so what I want to tender is upping the ante a little bit. Last episode, we discussed a thief, someone who had stolen and perhaps had been um, converted Uh, by their master or after they had stolen, and then they repent, and then uh, what do you do? Do you let him off the hook? Does he pay back his debt, or do do you punish him the way he should be punished? Should he pay back his debt? And we had concluded that it was better for society, and it was definitely biblical for a servant who had to pay restitution to his master to continue to pay that restitution. If he were truly a Christian, it would be part of his good works. And so that would be very important. And so what we're going to look at today and consider is what about a Christian who makes profession, whether he was born into a profession, so born in a Christian family or converted to it from some other way of life. What if that person living under a theonomy or not living under a theonomy commits a death penalty offense? What do you do with them then? Because in the case of a thief, he pays restitution. And if he can't pay, he's sold into into slavery. And so then he is bound to serve until his debt is paid off at a reasonable rate. And so in that way, those things would be paid for. In the case of a death penalty offense, we do not have that same situation. But if we recognize that even some murderers and even some who have done wrong things, who have committed adultery, such as King David and things like that, If we were to consider those types of situations and say, well, we know God renders them righteous. We can hear the prayers of David in Psalm 51, for example, and all throughout the Psalms. We know that David is looked at in that way. We know uh, Paul has repented of of killing the church and being instrumental in part of that and that he was living out his faith. How does that work in terms of a theonomy? how do we put that into an understanding where we can you know we can explain it to those who we may interact with and one of the answers that comes down is paul and david both admit that they're imputed by christ as was abraham that they believed and it was counted to them as righteousness and so in that way we we know that david and paul were on the mind of christ since the foundation of the world and that god had paid for their sins and he was willing to forgive their sins But in their cases, and in all the other cases in the Scripture, whenever we have death penalty offenses and a person comes to repentance, under a theonomy, how is it handled? Even if we do have a knowledge that they're forgiven, do we forgive them? Do you let them live? What is the case? Well, I'm just going to put it out there before, because we're not going to get into David, and we're not going to get into Paul specifically, we're actually going to take a look at um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and then look at its application in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But I do want to say, because I had mentioned it, that David, there were no witnesses to the uh, uh, the adultery that was committed between him and Bathsheba. And so Nathan the prophet is the only one who was there who came forward to have the king condemned, um, you know, and he put his finger in his face and said, Thou art the man, and called him to repentance, and David repents. And so in that situation, I would say that there was not two or three witnesses testifying against David, calling for his blood, and therefore he was released. But if that weren't the case, sure, David then would have been put to death, but that obviously was not in the will of God. But we also do understand that David was um Forgiven of that on a spiritual level. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't suffer some form of demotion in the kingdom or however that may work um, for breaking one of the commandments. But what we know is that Christ paid for him in his atonement. He covered him in that sense. We also know Paul in the same way. Paul thought he was doing what was good, he says. He thought he was doing what was best for everybody. Um, Persecuting the church was a good thing in his old mentality until. God appeared to him and showed him his grace, and then he even starts to recognize that he, he was called from his mother's womb, Paul says, that God might show his grace to him and in him. And so we also understand the same thing about Paul, that if it were a case of, of a society that was executing the laws of God and were already a Christian uh, nation— and witnesses came forward and say that man's a murderer. Yes, uh, very much so could Paul have been executed lawfully for the crimes that he committed against the church. But that is not the case. The church was not established at that time in that way. And so we cannot speak to those things from the same standpoint that we would speak um, of it when the church is scattered or in a state of diaspora, so to speak. But let's turn back our our mind Um, to just examining death penalty offenses. Let's get our mind familiarized with what sins man could have committed under God's law that would be punished by death. Um, And if that person were to repent and recognize their sin, uh, what would happen to them? Or perhaps uh, if even they as a Christian would commit these sins and perpetrate it and now awaits judgment. And so let's take a look at under a... Christian commonwealth and governmental system, what laws would be punished? Well, just out of the Ten Commandments, just out of the Ten Commandments, what we would find for death penalty offenses would be the first commandment, public worship of any other god but Yahweh. And so, of course, if someone's worshiping in secret, no one knows about it. There's no witnesses to put them to death. So we're just dealing with public worship of Any other God but Yahweh. Public idolatry also, which would pretty much be the same as the first. Uh, Publicly blaspheming Yahweh's name. Um, Publicly breaking the Sabbath, high-handedly breaking the Sabbath. Um, Striking or cursing one's parents, dishonoring one's parents, striking or cursing them both are uh, punishable by death. Um, Murder to kill another person without any uh, lawful cause and committing adultery. All of these commandments have respective statutes also and judgments um, for the violation of the order that God gave. And so under any of those situations, a death penalty offense would occur under a theonomy in, in our hypothetical situation as we are talking about it now and as we would talk about it in a historical sense when we would also look at some of the historical happenings on that same, on those same grounds, and so I'm going to head off this issue. I know it's going to come up. Someone's going to come up, but I'll reserve it for maybe a more detailed discussion later at some other on some other episode. And that is that some say that the law is for Israel as a nation only. Some say the law, the Pentateuch, theonomy is is done away with. It's gone. It was just for Israel when they're a nation. They're not a nation, so it's it's gone. And so this interpretation of the law often renders Israel's law, most of the laws that is under Moses, only applicable to those people from the ethnic or national uh, particularity of Israel. And so quickly, this seems to give people the wiggle room to say, well, the Ten Commandments, and I have yet to see a good concise reason for this to be quite honest, Um, or explanation of it why they've chose just the Ten Commandments but the Ten Commandments are moral you'll hear most anyone say of any reform perspective they'll say they're moral and they're for all people even for the heathen and so we can see this where other sons and daughters of Adam throughout the scriptures are condemned as sinners by the standard that they presume to be the Ten Commandments and so we see certain laws such as incest bestiality um all kinds of adulterated acts to be punished um severely and so <clears throat> people say well that's because it's part of the ten commandments what i don't understand about it and why i say i just want to head it off is because we know that the ten commandments are applicable for christians we understand that um, but it's clad kind of tight that the ten commandments are capped off they they, they have an enactment clause that says I am Yahweh thy God that has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that specifically deals in Exodus twenty, verse two, with Israel. Israel's the one that came out. Um, <clears throat> then we see the precope of Exodus twenty, twenty-two, and Yahweh said to Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. And so it seems pretty clear that in Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are found, or in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where they're also found, that is surrounded by Israel's uh, specificness talk. And so I'm not sure why that is something that is not oftentimes handled. um, When people say that the Ten Commandments also apply to other people, but these other laws only apply to Israel, there is Israel specific laws. Well, from that standpoint, you should be able to look at the Ten Commandments and give them up too, I suppose, which I'm not suggesting to do. I'm just simply saying if reason follows, the majority of Reformed Christians who will at least hang on to the Ten or the Nine Commandments, because most of them get rid of the Sabbath these days, unfortunately, um they would have to apply that same logic in understanding that the Ten Commandments is definitely dealing with Israel. And so when we speak of this from a sense of general morality, I'm, I'm not sure entirely. I've read lots on the subject. Uh, there's more I could read, I'm sure, on it. But I am not exactly sure why the Ten Commandments are oftentimes singled out as being the ones we're going to keep, whereas the uh Uh, the rest of them are just for Israel and Israel only, even though the Ten Commandments are also applied to Israel. But what I have also seen is that a great many people that do accept the Ten Commandments will say, well, we accept the Ten Commandments as some general morality rule, but we do not accept the statutes and judgments of the Ten Commandments. Uh, That's how to punish the moral um, breach um, by God's law. So we'll accept one, but we won't accept the other. And so the Ten Commandments should be the general rule for society, but we're not going to go as far as to punish the breaking of it in society in the way that God um, uh, says that you know it should be done. And, and most of the time this is said to be because there is a new dispensation that has happened at the time of the cross, that at the time of Christ, um, that a new dispensation had taken place or God had altered um, his covenant in some way. And so, again, this this ultimately does go back to how a person views Israel and who they are and how Israel's law applies to people. But in and of itself, this caters to the idea of dispensationalism. And I know some people, especially of of Reformed faith who are already in covenant theology who may hold this understanding are going to disagree at that time. They're going to say, I'm not a dispensationalist, Um, you know, that's not the case. But it's common in many different lines of theological system, at one degree or another, that these uh, ideas start to arrive up and overlap and that What I see is that very oftentimes that covenant theology that should be established as where the forgiveness of sin and the rendering of righteousness takes place sort of kind of gets thin at the case of what time in history we are at. Whether we are in the quote-unquote Old Testament time or the quote-unquote New Testament time, which from a strict covenant perspective, that is a time in a believer's life. It's not a time before the cross or after the cross because what God does uh, is declared from the foundation of the world. And so because of that, uh, there is no old time and new time. And so I would just simply say that the understanding we carry with us of what that means ultimately does not um, comport into covenant theology. We just can't just pick it up and drop it off there uh, and say that that has to be the meaning of of Old Covenant, New Covenant, that the cross is the dividing line between it. It is the dividing line in our understanding of salvation as believers, but it is not the dividing line in history. No, the cross is the central point of all history, but it was uh, determined since the foundation of the world that it would justify many. And so... When this is attached to theonomy, when dispensationalism like this is attached to theonomy, when one uh, says a change of hands has occurred in God's administration of his law, we oftentimes see some trouble um, start to arise, and that's where concepts actually start to get blurred on this issue as well. And so we start to to cross out one covenant that was – before a certain dispensation of time, with another or the words of another covenant. And so we should start to then see a problem if we're keeping our thoughts of what we've already uh, read and read you know, last episode. Withholding this, it creates a contradictory application. For instance, here's a human principle, Galatians 3.15. Uh, We're told, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it uh, once it had been ratified or confirmed. Okay, and then Galatians 3.17, this is what I mean. Uh, The law given to Moses for Israel when Israel left Egypt, which came 430 years after the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, does not and cannot annul a covenant previously ratified by God that's a promise, to make a promise void. Okay, This is because God's word is faithful again, so we're right back to the faithfulness of God. In other words, God's giving of the law to Moses for Israel as a nation cannot change the promise given to Abraham that came before it. Likewise, the Promise made since before the foundation of the world cannot be altered by the law or any anything else that comes after it, and so, as we line up the chronology of the covenants of God, we see that to believe that one covenant changes the words of another covenant um, we if we see that happening, we have contradicted the understanding of covenant theology, specifically as it's expressed here in Galatians chapter 3 15 and 17. And so we would ultimately say, because God's word is faithful, and so in this way, uh, the staunch uh, covenantal predestinationists can say God's word's immutable. Therefore, when he speaks about a people he has drawn to himself, and that he saves by the good pleasure of his will, um, by ultimately going all the way back in our record book, by the seed of the woman that would cover sin, the law of works by the law can never change that prior promise. And so we say Abraham was imputed righteous by God through faith and given a promise of a seed That would be a great nation and multitude of nations that would actually come out of his very own loins. That's the supernature of the whole situation. And though the great nation was given a covenant of works, the law of God, 430 years after that promise was made to Abraham that was to be used to judge justice and righteousness in society, that addition of the covenant cannot change the covenant of grace or of promise given to Abraham, and it can also not change the covenant of grace promise that has given some to Jesus, the Son of the Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit since before the foundation of the the world. It cannot change that. Now, they will have complementary overlaps, but they cannot change. One covenant cannot change um, the other is, I think, just a simple way to say it. And so, of course, at this point, we got to get back to how does this apply to the subject of applicable law under a theonomy? I mean, uh, this dispensational point of view. Now I'm, I'm considering that. Well, with a dispensationalist view, you can say God cancels out one covenant with another covenant. Okay, if you believe that's actually what happens. But that is opposed in the nature of covenant theology. In the very nature of covenant theology, when you take the words of Scripture at face value and say, no, there's no room to say that the Ten Commandments are moral and part of the moral law of God and offer moral basis for the laws of men. But the judgments and statutes uh, which are intimately connected to them are not applicable after a certain time such as the cross, because if one is applicable, then also the other is applicable too. The dispensation that changes that based on the idea of forgiveness does not apply because that forgiveness had already faithfully taken place since the, before the foundation of the world. And so, rather, all of God's law by means of a covenant of grace and a covenant of works are rooted in his nature and they are to bring about understanding in Messiah, in, in, in Christ, that, that you are a recipient of God's grace because you can't fulfill God's works, okay? So before all else, the covenant of grace has to supersede the covenant of works, and the covenant of works has to be laid upon the covenant of grace, but not to the canceling out of the grace. The grace is sustained and it is kept so that forgiveness of sins can go forward that the head of sin can be covered and crushed by the seed of the woman that was promised to come, and that that faithful saying from the foundation of the world stands as the forefront of the believer's hope and life. And so a dispensational mindset, while often not acknowledging it, and I, I understand that, that someone who maybe believes that, they don't often acknowledge it, that at some point they place the power of sin and thus the covenant of works on par with the covenant of grace. It seems like there's an easy ability to just kind of slip right back into this idea that at one time before Jesus, you had to keep the law perfectly or blamelessly, or you had to keep the law to such and such a point in order to be forgiven. And they forget about that covenant of grace that happened before the foundation of the world that secured even Father Abraham and David and um, all of the great men of Scripture the great men of faith. And so oftentimes what you'll see is someone will say that uh, to do X is like trampling on the blood of Christ. Or doing X is to despite the spirit of grace. You know, if you keep the Sabbath or if you, um, uh, you know, Put too high of an esteem on your good works, that you're doing it despite the spirit of grace, they'll kind of abuse that language, while not considering that that is specifically talking about believing that God's grace could be set aside for your own works, despite his spirit of grace that has saved you, despite that covenant that happened before the foundation of the world, that the will was expressed to to Christ by the Father. And so in our case, to hold a sinner accountable in society ethically um, regulated by God's rule of law, by a society ethically regulated by God's rule of law, is then the equivalent of works-based salvation to some people. And But it has to be preceded by that mindset, this is a salvation matter, or this, this is on par with that which happened since the foundation of the world, and it's not. And so the person who believes this has a disconnect at some point wherein the, the functional or systematic root and foundation in what he considers to be grace, the free gift of God, um, the work of the triune God alone, in the bringing about of salvation or of what the covenant must be at the forefront of human affairs to immutably stand as an oath, that cannot be added to or taken away from once it was ratified and confirmed since the foundation of the world. There's a disconnect there somewhere with someone who would challenge us on that way. They actually have some form of dispensationalist understanding of what happens at the cross in order to accuse us in that way. And so when we consider a sin under unto death in a society governed by God's rule of law, as was the nation of Israel under Moses, or a Christian theonomy built on the same laws of God given from heaven to Israel, the sin as it was perpetrated still must be punished regardless of the profession of the sinner, okay? Or in disregard of the actual uh, status of, of the soul of the murderer, adulterer, public idolater, um, blasphemer, Sabbath breaker. Okay, regardless of if they are part of God's election and selection for salvation in the spiritual realm, for their high-handed sin in society, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, as is confirmed by the law, that person will still have to be punished by death because they are worthy of death. The dispensation of Christ does not change that Um, The dispensation of time, that is, of Christ does not change the fact that in a society when it's governed that way still has an obligation to put away evil from among you. As is very clearly stated that the the people of Israel, the people in general, those which remain are all supposed to put away evil from among them, according to Deuteronomy 13.11. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.13, Deuteronomy 19.20, Deuteronomy 21.21. And so that needs to take place in that theonomy. It is confirmed. The dispensation list idea should not at all come into our minds that some change had taken place, wherein we would let those go under a theonomy where God's law is the rule of law. The government and the sanctuary then has the responsibility to teach the people just judgment, you know, as a general rule is, is being practiced. You have to remember, under a theonomy that's established, the law of God as a general rule, like the laws in the United States or in the UK or wherever you're at, um, would apply to you. That's how God's law would be understood. It may not be believed that it's from heaven by everyone. It you would know, be nice if it was, but we know that's not the case. But what we do know is that the laws of God, like we know the laws in our society, would be the general rule. And especially the ones that when they're broken, they are capitally punished uh, by death. And so that is very important to remember, that when you're dealing in a theonomy, uh, the person who claims that, well, since Jesus had come, that death penalty offense doesn't apply to me, that's just a general rule, it wouldn't apply anymore anyhow in a theonomy. Um, You would have certain punishments that will be punished by death because they are not only criminal, but they are also sin. And that sin needs to be put out from among Israel regardless of the fact that person has been saved since the foundation of the earth or not. That's between him and God. But what he has done in the world that he lives in is still going to have to be put away at that time because it is not only a Violation against himself and a violation against whoever he has perpetrated that offense on, whether it was adultery, whether it was um, murder, regardless of what it is, um, society sees it and it brings society down. And so, if it is not punished in a theonomy, the theonomy will self destruct. If it does not support its own theonomic principles that says God's law is the rule of law, God's judgments are our judgments, we don't make the laws, God does. If it, if it doesn't support that, then it is going to crumble. It will self destruct. And so a theonomy does not entertain the idea of your soul status at the foundation of the world. That's not our knowledge. That's not the knowledge of a judge. That's not the knowledge of the people. That's not the knowledge of anyone on a human level to actually know that. That's between you and God. And though you have done a sin to death, you may be forgiven by Jesus, it's judgment. But because two or three witnesses saw you do it, society will be polluted by it. You are going to have to be punished capitally because of the sin that has been committed of those forms of violations. And so what about when Israel is scattered among the nations? What about when the church lives amidst? a wicked and perverse generation that knows not the law of God and does not live in a theonomy of God's moral and judicial judgments. Uh, What about that time? What about at the time the apostles lived? What about the time when even Jesus lived, quite frankly, um, where we see the elders wanting to punish Christ and put him to death for what they had judged as a sin and a crime worthy of death? Uh, In John 18.31, we have the very situation of this. They lived in a time when Rome uh, was really the power of Judea. Okay, Judah answered to Rome. They did not have all of the power that they um, would have had under King David, for instance, or they would have had under uh, any of the other kings of Israel to punish according to God's law fully. And so in John 18.31, when Pilate says to them, take ye him and judge him, Christ, according to your law, they said, the Jews, the elders of of Judah said, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And so we see very clearly that there are times in Israel's history, as well as in the church's history, where the apostles lived also, where it is not lawful for them to put a person to death, though they personally think that it's worthy of of, uh, of of death and so they have to answer to even a higher authority than themselves and so we find this no differently in the church at the times of the apostles when the law and the gospel was spreading okay and so in the epistles we have such a situation as we had a situation of Philemon and Onesimus uh, as a servant-master relationship, as well as all the things Paul says regarding the servant-master relationship, we also have a situation of a death penalty ex- uh, offense. And we also have an expert at God's law, the Apostle Paul, who learned at the feet of, of a great law teacher, Gamaliel, in his day, offering what the church resort is in this situation, in a time when God's law was not the rule of law in the land's of the Gentiles and that they lived under, very much like we find ourselves today and as the church deals with itself even to this day in America right now, though it wasn't always this way. But in 1 Corinthians 5.1, we see the Apostle Paul saying, It's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not uh, so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. So we see very clearly this is a violation of god 's law that one should have his father's wife for those who maybe are not um, familiar. This would be uh, falling under thou shalt not commit adultery it 's a form of fornication, and it is punishable by death, according to Leviticus twenty verse eleven it 's punished by being cut off in Leviticus eighteen eight which is generally considered a synonym of being put to death but sometimes not always the case it could be a type of excommunication from the nation um forbidden this this type of activity is forbidden to even be entertained with the eyes um that a man looks at his father's wife in deuteronomy twenty two thirty, and a curse is even pronounced in deuteronomy twenty seven twenty for this very thing we see the apostle paul dealing with in first corinthians chapter 5 And so all these laws are certain. They are decisive in punishment. Death is the penalty in the land given to a lawful people, especially Israel. But in a land where occasionally even the emperor, as some of the emperors of Rome, did such things like this, and in a land where there is no objective morality enforced to shame the subjects into not doing it, though I know there are some who would argue and say, nature testifies about this type of gross stuff. But like I just said, the emperor of Rome did it. And, um, this is one of those things that, um, you know, is recorded to have been done by the Canaanites and the Egyptians. So why would we believe that nature's witness to it, even what we do know that nature should witness to it, um, is going to be clear for the heathen to understand in and of itself without the law of God helping. And so, in fact, we have been, in our society, raised within the confines of the law, and especially those of us of the 20th century, the 21st century as we're in now, is just pretty much, I don't even know what they know is moral anymore. But um, we know that this is disgusting because our magistrates upheld such crimes at almost every, every level. Um, Almost every state has biblical um, prohibitions. While they don't carry out biblical judgments as they should, they have biblical prohibitions of this form of incest taking place that, um, you know, this cannot take place in our society. So this is why we feel this way and say, well, that's disgusting. Nobody would even do that. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case in other countries not affected by Christianity. That is, in fact, a Repercussion of being raised as close to the law of God as even the nominal Christians have been raised under. And so Paul's not silent in 1 Corinthians 5 as to how severe the sin was after the cross, um, as if it was something, well, you know, just kind of get past it. But rather, what's he say? He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we do see that Paul is definitely focusing on the salvation of this person. Now, in other words, I think what Paul's saying is let him alone, put him outside of the church, let Satan have his way, and maybe it will benefit him that he will turn his life around, that he will change, but the church needs to put him out. And so, in the case of a theonomy, we would not ever have one delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, would we? I mean, the destruction of the flesh would not be Satan's doing. No, Satan does not do God's work for him. Rather, what we see in the law of God and under a theonomy is that godly judges would do this and they would not be called Satan. So, to be turned over to Satan is to relinquish the church oversight in a heathen land and just let them go back to the ways of the godless, um, I would think would be the best way to understand that. Paul says in verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world." But now I have written unto you, not to keep company, that if any man is called a brother, be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or drunkard, or extortioner, with such a one, do not eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Talking about the heathen. Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judges. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And so we see Paul's definite judgment on this matter to put the person out of the church and the society. And again, what is the distinction? What is the difference in this society? Well, they're living in a land where the church is not the government. They're not in a theonomy. They're not in a place where God's law is the rule of law. They're living in a place where obviously this happens and it happens without punishment. And so even the church, if we would have read the entirety of the chapter was puffed up and they hadn't mourned yet. And so if that's the case, then we even see the churches being soft on this issue. They are even somewhat confused as to the morality of the issue. So Paul is having to teach them to establish morality in the world has to be at the focal point of the establishment of the theonomy before it has happened. It has to be to establish the church to teach the law of God and to teach it correctly these are first generation converts in many ways and so out of second corinthians 2 that the same person is being dealt with as he was reaccepted back into the church and i think that that is definitely a, a plausible situation starting in 6 paul says sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many so that counterwise ye ought rather to forgive him and to Confirm him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with much sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love towards him, for to this end also did I write that I might know the profit of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also, for if I forgive anything to whom I forgave, for I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And so again this statement is also concerning the whole of the congregation. We see him speaking to them, hoping they were obedient, knowing they weren't entirely knowledgeable of it. They were puffed up in First Corinthians um, five. They hadn't mourned yet. The church needed to be taught. The judges in the church, the elders and the deacons needed to be taught. In the law of God, too, they needed to understand the uh, severity of this fornication and adultery that was taking place. And so they could not have executed this person. Not only did they not have the lawful power, just as uh, the Jews that wanted to kill Christ didn't have the lawful power to put him to death. Neither did the church at that time have that lawful authority either. And so we see what instead we see what we call excommunication the putting away of the man who's done the sin, and then we see forgiveness also allowed to to come, and we see that that is because the person did mourn. We see that because the, the church did repent and understand this is a severe issue. We need to teach our people God's morality from God's law, but obviously you can't go putting people to death within the church when they just learned what was wrong. Okay, so, you know... When we try to use things like this to um, abandon gnomian thought, lawful thought in the church, what we do is we just create situations that um, just make the epidemics like we have today of homosexuality and so-called transgenderism and how they're tolerated in the church. We wouldn't have much difference here in just a few years, if not even today, of trying to convince churches like Paul, to curve their sinful problem and to excommunicate those in the church that are practicing other fornications and adulterous acts such as homosexuality and and try to get them to to listen. We would have – no one has the authority or power that even Paul has to call the churches to repentance to do this. And so we sit here and wait for the power of God um, to – Change the hearts is what we we wait for. But as we see very similar things now in churches or so-called churches that profess the name of Christ, all of which have a Bible and do not care one bit what the law portion of that Bible says. The difference between what God says in his law in an established land and society versus what we see in the epistles, which was not an established theonomy. It was a church functioning in a heathen nation. But how about when a theonomy is established? Because the closest thing that we've ever had uh, in the world is under Oliver Cromwell in England, Scotland, and Ireland, as well as what we find by the Puritans um, in in, uh, New England in the 13 colonies. That's about as close as we've got to a theonomy. And we had our faults, and many of those faults were because people did not enact the full judgments of God and the full law of God also, that we saw a slow deterioration of that theonomy uh, until the time of the revolution, where it was pretty well dissolved almost at that point. But in John Winthrop's journal, John Winthrop was the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. um, He describes the plight of Mary Latham and James Britton from his diary. And so he records a situation that actually took place between a woman who committed adultery on her husband with a man, and that is Mary Latham is her name, and James Britton was the one who perpetrated the crime. And so I'm going to read a section, an ending here, of this diary um, where you could also go and find in the book, called The History of New England from 1630 to 1649, and my edition is compiled by James Savage. This is in Volume 2, pages 157 through 59. And so here we go. Here is a theonomy functioning and punishing those capitally who have broken the law of God on death penalty offenses. At this court of assistance, one James Britton, a man ill-affected both to our church discipline and civil government, and one Mary Latham, he says, a proper young woman about 18 years of age whose father was a godly man and had brought her up well, were condemned to die for adultery upon a law formerly made, published in print. Notice that, a law formerly made and published in print. They knew the law. It was thus occasioned and discovered. And I'm going to skip the center here. Yet some of the magistrates, listen to this, jumping down in what is said, we're told this, some of the magistrates thought the evidence not sufficient against her because there were not two direct witnesses, but the jury cast her. But then, so though they weren't willing to put her to death because there wasn't two or three witnesses according to the the law of God, the jury cast her, and then she confessed the facts and accused 12 others with her, whereof two were married men. Five of these were apprehended and committed, the rest were gone, but denying it, and there being no other witnesses against them than the testimony of a condemned person. There could be no proceeding against them the wim, The woman provided very penitent, so what happens is the woman witnesses against herself uh though the two direct witnesses were not needed were not had at first. she then witnesses against herself, and it says that she became very penitent, she had deep apprehensions of the foulness of her sin, and at length she attained to the hope of pardon by the blood of Christ, and was willing to die in satisfaction to justice. Listen to that. Listen to what this woman says who's ready to die, who's going to die. She had deep apprehension of the foulness of her sin and at length attained to the hope of pardon by the blood of Christ and was willing to die to satisfy justice. The man also was very much cast down for his sins, but was loath to die and petitioned the general court for his life. But they would not grant it. Though some of the magistrates, now listen carefully, some of the magistrates spake much for it and questioned the letter. Okay, now that's a direct reference to 2 Corinthians, the letter of the law. They questioned the letter whether adultery was death by God's law now. In other words, now, dispensation idea, that after Christ, is it still death by God's law now? This Briton had been a professor in England, but come hither he opposed our church government and grew dissolute, losing both power and profession of godliness. Then we are told they were both executed, they both died very penitently, especially the woman who had some comfortable hope to pardon of her sin, and she gave good exhortation to all the young maids to be obedient to their parents and to take heed of the evil company they were among. And so on that note, what have we seen? Well, we walked our way through what God says underneath um, a biblical society governed by the law of God, as it would be under Moses, how it should be handled. We then see in the Corinthians uh, time, um a person worthy of death who is not put to death because of the laws of the land at the time and him not knowing, the people not even knowing to mourn uh, about the problem that was going on and therefore showing that they did not have um, enough knowledge to uh, affect a change morally in the congregation and of this man, let alone themselves. But then we also see what about a time when a theonomy is in rule Uh, that the law of the land is the law of God, at least more so than we see today and in most nations of the world. What do we see? Well, we see no contradiction with the justice of God being executed upon a sinner who was able to read the letter of the law, know that was the law of the land, and still chose to break the law of God. And we see actually a very amazing testimony by Mary Latham, that she is penitent for her sins and is even desirous to die to settle divine justice. And before she dies, she preaches to the maidens to respect their parents and to stay away from evil company, um, which is just an an amazing story in and of itself. But um, hopefully this has been informative and that uh, you've learned something about covenant theology today more as well as understanding how it would make impact on a theonomy and how that once we settle this idea of of um, Christ's forgiveness being able to uh, come since the foundation of the world and be applied by his blood at the time of the crucifixion and then by the faithful word of God apply to all those um, who are faithful to him and to what he does for them, that there is in fact no contradiction, no need of abandoning any part of God's law in the letter because it is not contradictory to the way things work anyhow uh, in, in society. And so thanks again for joining me for another episode of Sola Scriptura. I do hope this has been informative and that uh, it's able to help you in some way in your understanding of both covenant theology and theonomy. In another two weeks, we'll have another episode. See you then.